In the early morning of July 1991, something was on the railroad tracks on the outskirts of Williamston, North Carolina. But that something turned out to be a someone. Why was he there? I'm investigative journalist Delia D'Ambra, and over the past year, my investigation for the latest season of my show, Counterclock, has plunged me into the details of a mystery so big and so bizarre that it feels like fiction, but it's not. It's reality. And the reality is that while my investigation started as a look into one man's suspicious death, what I uncovered is a web of small-town secrets, a string of other crimes, missing people, and so many other suspicious deaths. These are all things that I think many have tried to keep hidden. Do not go looking for answers. I've had to rethink everything I thought I knew about where I'm from. That somebody is somebody's plural. Listen to Counterclock Season 6 now, wherever you're listening. If a friend asks how you're doing, and you say, I'm okay. When the truth is, I don't want my problems to burden anyone. Or you say, Hang it in there. Because, If I ask for help, they'll just think I'm weak. Then this is your sign to call. Text or chat 988 for free confidential support anytime. You don't have to hide how you feel. When I found out I was going to be a parent, I immediately felt a lot of anxiety and worry. So I went on to BetterHelp to try to look for a therapist to help me with that. My relationship with my family and with my boyfriend and with myself were suffering. I really needed help. I was ruminating a lot. Really getting those thoughts out to a therapist and getting feedback was just life-changing. If you're thinking of giving therapy a try, learn more at BetterHelp.com. That's betterhelp.com. In the Miracle Mile Massacre, three people were killed, but only one of them was tied up, bound and gagged with tape. That was Cherise Song. On the sticky side of the tape, investigators found the glove fragments that led to the conviction of Robin Cho for the murders. But there was more there, and it really complicates the story. On the other side of the tape, the non-sticky side, crime scene investigators discovered a palm print. Right after the murder, an LAPD criminalist compared photographs of this palm print with reference samples and found a match. Pyong Song, Choi Song's husband. But in trial, the prosecution presented expert witnesses who said it was not a match. So who's right and who's wrong? And what other evidence presented at trial just doesn't add up? Turns out there's a lot of stuff that happens in courtrooms that experts say shouldn't, and not just in Robin Cho's trial. More holes in the case on this episode of Strangeland. I'm Ben Adair. And I'm Sharon Choi. You're listening to Strangeland Season 1, The Koreatown Murders. This is Episode 8, Holes in the Case, Part 2. So, Sharon, 
When we think about the evidence that was presented at Cho's trial, there was the one thing that was very, very strong, the DNA. But there were a lot of other things the prosecution used to try to show Cho was connected to the murders. Last episode, we talked about the financial crimes and how those weren't at all what they seemed. Now let's get into some of these other things, starting with this palm print. It was initially called a match for Byung Song, but nine years later, at trial, it's different. What happened? What changed? Well, it turns out this palm print went on quite a journey over those nine years. The print was initially analyzed by the LAPD's Ruben Sanchez. He felt the print was a match for Song. First, he reported his findings to Detective McCartan. Then he gave his analysis to his supervisor. She analyzed it and agreed. Pyong Song was a match. This should be huge. It would mean that Pyong Song was at the crime scene, that potentially he was the one who tied up his wife. Well, this is where the palm prints journey begins, as a match for Song. But LAPD policy at the time said that you needed three separate examiners to agree it's a match in order to state that officially. Three separate examiners. Why? Because it turns out that things like fingerprint and handprint analysis aren't as straightforward as they're often presented. Well, I think the general public's view of forensic science is largely shaped by television programs like, you know, CSI, in which the a forensic science is presented as uh, virtually infallible and highly objective. This is Professor William Thompson of University of California, Irvine. He's both a lawyer and a highly published researcher on criminal justice matters. There's a lot of subjectivity to it. The determinations are being made by human beings, human beings who are often under pressure and maybe not working in the most uh, objective manner. Their results, although generally accurate, may not always be accurate. Interesting. So the LAPD has this policy. It takes three analysts to agree before it's official. Yeah. The first two analysts agree. So they start looking for a third opinion to make the case. According to court documents, the third analyst examines the print and says, no, she can't make a determination. The fourth finds, quote, there were insufficient consistencies to make an identification. And the fifth and final analyst, quote, the source print was too fragmentary and incomplete to serve as a basis for any type of comparison. So two out of five analysts agree? Right. No third concurring opinion. So the investigators started looking outside the LAPD. McCartan received a report from a David Witzke at 4A Technologies. We obtained a copy of that report, and his conclusion was, quote, The bottom line is that I was unable to successfully enhance these images to create anything that was vaguely identifiable, unquote. So, no dice. Right. But Casey Wertheim felt differently. Jesus Christ, Casey Wertheim? How many people analyze this palm print? Who is Casey Wertheim? Okay, so, well, in court documents, he's referred to as a renowned expert. At the time, he was the director of forensic services at LuminIQ. We also obtained a copy of his report. His opinion was that there was sufficient dissimilarity between the palm print and Song's reference print. So seventh analyst says it's not Song at all? Yes, that's right. 
which brings us back to Professor Thompson. The judgments experts make about the degree of variability within the same prints from the same finger aren't always perfect. Sometimes they mistakenly will exclude prints known to have been made by the same person. Professor Thompson is the co-author of a huge scientific examination into the examiners. He studied how accurate print analysts are at finding matches and non-matches. And his result? They're pretty inconsistent. In studies done to test the accuracy of fingerprint examiners, you often see false, what we call false exclusions. They're not common, but they're not, they're not that rare. False exclusions tend to be more common than false matches, uh, but both kinds of errors can occur. False exclusions are more common than false matches. So that means potentially someone who committed a crime might get away with it if the print analyst mistakenly excludes them. That seems like a big problem. And Professor Thompson told me about another problem that can arise in fingerprint analysis. Bias. So if the examiner is led to believe by investigators or police reports or something that two fingerprints are very likely to match and then the comparison's a little inconclusive or a little ambiguous and it's hard to tell, I think they're more likely to lean in favor of a decision that calls them same source. If they think that that's, if they're led to believe on a, based on other evidence that that's the right answer and vice versa. Yeah, I could see how that would be a problem especially with LAPD's in-house analysts. If they have prior knowledge of the case and they know ahead of time Byung Song is the husband of the victim and he's the only potential suspect, that information could bias the investigator. Go from like, oh yeah, maybe, to oh yeah, definitely. You have to understand when examiners are comparing prints, typically the decision as to whether there's sufficient similarity to say that they're from the same source or not is a totally subjective decision. Different experts can reach different conclusions about whether two prints are from the same source or not. In fact, we know from studies that the same expert looking at the same prints on two different times can reach different conclusions on that. The same expert can analyze the same prints and draw different conclusions at different times. That happens? It does. It actually happened in Cho's case. When? So in 2003, two LAPD examiners said the palm print was a match for Song. Nine years later, at trial, they testified for the prosecution, and they said they changed their minds. According to court documents, Ruben Sanchez and Marilyn Downs re-examined their work close to the time of trial and reformed their finding, and newly found that the result of the comparison was inconclusive and eight other fingerprint analysts testified for the prosecution as well. All the ones I mentioned before, and some new ones, for a total of 10. 10? That's a lot. Out of curiosity, I told Professor Thompson about the number of witnesses Santoro called. He was kind of taken aback. I've never heard of a case where 10 fingerprint examiners testified on the same comparison. I suppose that the prosecution must have thought it was really, really important to prove that that initial report was incorrect. I mean, they, they must have seen that as a very threatening finding. 
for them. I mean, I mean, 10 would be 10 would be very valuable if each of them is making an independent determination, each blind to the determinations of all the others. But I bet that's I'd be willing to bet money that's not what happened. Obviously, Professor Thompson is just speculating here. In the court documents that I obtained, I have really only a few pieces of correspondence between detectives and the examiners. So we don't really know what they knew about the case beforehand. Professor Thompson has made recommendations to address some of the issues he and his team found in fingerprint examinations. They've recommended things like blind testing and stricter rules on the type of language analysts can use when testifying. And he says, with some exceptions, they've been largely ignored. You know, I think they're putting victory at trial in criminal prosecutions above doing good science, from my point of view. They're willing to tolerate bad science so long as it helps them put away the people they think are guilty. And I would rather that they were more concerned about doing the work and presenting the findings in a way that's accurate and fair. After the break, one more hole in the case. For me, it might be the biggest. That's coming up right after the break. If a friend asks how you're doing, and you say, I'm okay. When the truth is, I don't want my problems to burden anyone. Or you say, Hang it in there. Because, If I ask for help, they'll just think I'm weak. Then this is your sign to call, text, or chat. 988 for free, confidential support. Anytime. You don't have to hide how you feel. The living room is where you make life's most beautiful memories. But your sofa shouldn't be the one remembering them. The new life-resistant, high-performance furniture collection from Ashley is designed to withstand all the spills, slip-ups, and muddy paws that come with the best parts of life. Ashley high-performance sofas and recliners are soft, on-trend, and easy to clean. Shop the high-performance furniture in-store or online at ashley.com. Ashley, for the love of home. The last real big hole in this case, for me, happened on May 16, 2003, 11 days after the murders, when the LAPD Robbery Homicide Division received the tip letter in the mail. Right, the tip letter. Let me read it again for everybody. So it was typewritten and then photocopied. It said, quote, Song's husband have a young girlfriend. That's why they had arguments so much. He sent her to New York last month and will be back in July. Husband hired guys from Korea to be free from wife, and guys went to Korea last week. I do not know how much he paid for this service to guys from Korea. To find out more, call Scott Song and Jay Lee." Unquote. So this is really puzzling to me. First, because it proposes this very specific version of these events that Pyeongsong hired killers to murder his wife. And second, because in trial, the prosecution wanted the jury to believe that Robin Cho wrote this letter. Okay, let's get into it. So the first line is Song's husband have a young girlfriend. And as we've mentioned, after initially denying it, 
police did find at least one affair that they could verify. Right, which is interesting because that means the person who wrote the letter must have had some knowledge of Song's private life. Yeah, it could be. Unless the writer got the idea from speculation in the community at the time. We know from court documents that the police questioned Song about his affairs as early as May 7th. Oh, okay, so that's a week before the tip letter. The cops were already on it. Yeah, exactly. What about the rest of the letter? It says Song hired guys from Korea to be free from wife. Is there any evidence in Song's finances of this kind of transaction? Not that the police could find, no. And what about the names at the bottom of the letter? For more information, call Scott Song and Jay Lee. They were never identified. We've talked about how hard it can be to find individuals in Korea. Lee and Song are two of only a couple dozen Korean last names. And then add in English first names that probably aren't the names on people's passports, birth certificates, or licenses. It's hard to track that all down. So the letter just sits in a pile of evidence as the case goes cold. Until five years later, when Robin Cho is arrested and his mother's apartment is searched, detectives find and confiscate a Brother GX6750 electronic typewriter. All of a sudden, this tip letter is relevant again, but in a different way than before. Different? How? Well, the first time around, police were investigating the content of the letter, trying to verify its claims. But now law enforcement wants to investigate the literal document itself and see what clues they can gather. In April of 2009, Detective George Shamlian enlisted the services of a forensic document examiner named William Lever. Lever inspected the tip letter, the envelope it arrived in, and the typewriter from Cho's mother's apartment. I tried to contact Lever, but he didn't return my emails or phone calls. Oh, bummer. But I did find another forensic document examiner. So um, the word forensic means anything that applies to law. So you could have a forensic psychiatrist, a forensic nurse, anything like that. This is Dr. Linton Mohammed. He has over 35 years experience and has served as an expert witness over 150 times. He also sits on the board of directors for the American Academy of Forensic Sciences. So a document examiner, as the name implies, we examine documents to determine their age, their source, their content, or their authenticity, or all of the above. Dr. Mohammed wasn't connected to the original trial but he agreed to walk me through William Lever's examination. The envelope didn't reveal much of anything. There was no return address, and it was postmarked May 14th, two days before the police received it. But the tip letter itself was full of strangeness. Hmm, like what? So it was three paragraphs, and each paragraph is misaligned. Paragraph one does not align with paragraph two, two doesn't align with three, or any of them. The third paragraph is the strangest, the one that reads, to find out more, call Scott Song and Jay Lee. Yeah, so that's, that's actually a different font to the typewriting above. This uh, font above is what's called a serif font. The one below is a sorcery font, so it's totally different. The Scott Song is different in, in style, um, yeah, it could have been, been computer-generated. 
It sort of sounds like one of those old-timey ransom notes, like bits and pieces cut out and then photocopied onto one document to try to disguise the sender. Yeah, it kind of does. So in the trial, William Lever testified that paragraphs 1 and 2 of the tip letter were the same typeface as the element in the typewriter from Cho's mom's apartment. The same font. But because it was a photocopy, not the original, he couldn't link it to that specific typewriter. I mean, not to be blunt, but who cares if it's the same typeface in the make and model of a brother typewriter? They probably sold thousands of those. Yeah, I mean, they were pretty ubiquitous. So I think that the brother electronic typewriters were quite popular because they were very easy to use. And they were also very light, fairly light. Okay, I mean, look, Sharon, I don't know if this even rises to the level of circumstantial evidence. Right. But Lever, the prosecution's expert, also used another method to see if there was a link between the tip letter and the typewriter. This typewriter uses what's called a carbon fiber ribbon. And it turns out you can take the ribbon element out of the typewriter and make a transcript of everything that's been typed on that ribbon. Well, uh, the old-fashioned way is to basically put the ribbon over like a light, light your table and read it manually. Um, there, there is a machine called the Ribbon Analysis Workstation, which actually automatically reads the, the uh, ribbon. It's a bit testy because ribbons tend to fly off and go across the room. But when it works, it works really, really well. So what was on the ribbon? Just so many things. There's a list of names, addresses, and phone numbers. There are also quite a few pages of business documentation for a company called Nugen Technology. Quote, sales report, June 7th, 96, $3,950, etc. The dates on the ribbon range from 1996 to 2001, which is strange because the typewriter was confiscated eight years later, in 2009. Throughout the transcripts, there are also pages and pages of these passages that I'm not sure what to make of. I'll read one to you. Quote, If you have a thought in mind for needless things you need in order to make your life complete, instead of lying in your pool of misery, your oasis of deep sorrow leaving nothing. Without happiness, pain does not exist. Pain owes no explanation of what resolve it holds. I need your arms to hold me against your will, your fingertips digging into my flesh, the cold sharpness only you possess. The core is always sweeter than the flesh." Unquote. Then there are pages and pages of just random typing. Random letters, numbers, characters, no pattern at all that I could see. For pages and pages. I asked Dr. Mohammed if he could see some kind of pattern that maybe my untrained eyes couldn't. I have no. I have no idea. This is just, um, looks as though someone just hitting the keyboard and typing at, at random and there's, there's no rhyme or reason to it. William Lever? didn't make anything of it either. His report doesn't determine that the tip letter was typed on this ribbon. So it doesn't sound like the prosecution's expert can tie this letter to Cho at all. So that's the end of that, right? Not quite. 
In February of 2012, almost three years after William Lever wrote his report for Detective Shamlian, Prosecutor Frank Santoro sent Lever an email, which we obtained. It reads, in part, Hi Bill, in the triple murder case against defendant Robin Cho, can you please look at the typewriter ribbon to see if the ribbon contains any words, names, phrases, or even grouped letters that are in the letter? The defendant was smart enough to take numerous precautions when he committed the crime. He may have taken efforts to not type the letter in one straight shot, so that the ribbon would not reflect the words in the letter. And then, quote, We are set for trial, so I don't mean to rush you, but the sooner the better, my friend. Unquote. Wait, I don't, I don't get it. Like, maybe he typed a little tip letter, then some random letters, and then a little more tip letter? That's the idea, yeah. But Dr. Mohammed took a look at the tip letter and said he didn't think that was possible in this case. The spacing between the letters was far too neat. Let me see what the second document looks like. No, those, the first paragraph seems to be aligned properly. So it's going to be difficult to put that back in and try and take it out again. Even under cross-examination, when Lever was asked, quote, you can't tell us whether or not the typewriter confiscated as evidence produced that letter, correct? Lever responded, quote, That's correct, not specifically. Then how does Santoro make the case that Cho wrote the tip letter? Mostly through innuendo and speculation. We talked about this in the trial episode. Santoro made a huge deal about Cho asking the cops if anyone had sent an accusation about him. Cho had said to detectives, quote, Did anybody allege something about me? Like somebody sending a letter, alleging me as someone who did it? Because I've been accused wrongfully so many times in the past, like taking tens of thousands of dollars, unquote. Right, but as we found out in the last episode, at least some of his investors did totally exaggerate about his wrongdoing. I know, but in his closing argument, Santoro presented slides to the jury. Quote, Cho asks if someone sent a letter about him to the police. This is the kind of thing that someone would ask if they were the kind of person to send a letter. That seems like a real stretch. Yeah. All of this makes me think that these problems Professor William Thompson has with how evidence is presented at trial are justifiable concerns. I even asked Dr. Mohammed about this. I hesitated because he was so kind and helpful, and I was basically going to have to criticize his profession. But instead of being offended, he agreed with me. We have criticized a lot for being too strong. The evidence must be there, and I must be able to demonstrate that, that evidence. There was um, a document examiner from, from the UK he wrote a book, and in the book he said, what you cannot demonstrate is not evidence. And I've spent my career testifying based on that. If I cannot demonstrate it, I should be testifying to it. You're dealing with the people's lives and liberty and property and so on. you got to be careful. And if you don't know, just say you don't know. can't tell. Okay, Sharon. Now that we've gone through all the holes in the case, we're going to take a break. And when we come back, I'm going to ask you a question that is probably on everyone's minds right now. What's the question? 
I want to know if you think Robin Cho committed these murders. We'll be right back. Have you heard? Sling TV offers the news you love for less. Hey, wait. You look and sound just like me. I am you. I'm the same news programs on Sling TV for less. You mean you're me, but for less money. A lot less. I'm all the favorite news programs and more on Sling TV starting at just $40 a month. Everything great about me, but for less money? Which makes me greater, don't you think? Get the news you love and more for less. Start saving today. Visit Sling.com to see your offer. Sling. Save big money on everything for your next project today at Menards. Transform your home in one weekend with exterior stain and sealer from Dutch Boy. It provides one coat protection on decks, fences, siding, and outdoor furniture and repels rain after just four hours of application. That means quicker results, saving you both time and money. Check out our weekly flyer, plus other great deals happening this week on Menards.com. Save big money at Okay, so Sharon, we've been investigating this case for almost a year now, and it's important when we're investigating any case that we remain objective. We have to. That's what we do. But that said, behind the scenes, you, me, the whole team working on this show, from time to time, we do speculate. We share theories, ideas about what we think might have happened. It's almost like we're venting to each other. We get these theories out of our system and then we can go back to doing our, you know, very diligent job. But the venting sessions are always super interesting. And so I want to let the listeners in on one of these conversations. Uh, So with the disclaimer that these are our opinions, well, not even opinions. These are our guesses, informed guesses, but guesses. Um, Let's start with the prosecutor's theory of the case. Robin Cho needed money. He decided to rob the songs. He was surprised, so he murdered them. Does that add up for you? So I think the prosecution's case or theory about robbery gone wrong and that's why Robin Cho committed this murder never really convinced me. If he somehow knew that the Swungs had a ton of cash in the house from their BMW cars or whatever and went into the apartment for the purpose of getting money, he would not have waited 30 minutes for Cherie Song to come back and murder her, you know? After murdering the nanny and the boy, he would have just taken all the money, whatever he could find of the apartment, and got the hell out of there. He wouldn't have stayed there and waited for this one specific person. So it makes me think that whoever murdered these three victims, you know, was targeting Cherise, there was like personal motive behind this, which Robin Cho just never had. And, you know, the other the other part of it is like what Joe Loya said in the last episode, the idea of tying up the wife, like tying somebody up that way is like an intimate act. And that means that there's kind there's there must be some kind of like real strong motivation. Right. Between the killer and this woman. Yeah. And also, another thing that the prosecution claimed is that Robin Cho is this super smart master murderer criminal, knew how to, like, manipulate people and had all these tricks to type up a tip letter on a typewriter so that he won't get caught. 
And the killer was actually very careful. You know, the scene was very contained. No one heard the gunshots. There were no shell casings found. And yet, you know, there are things that Robin Cho did that make me think that he wasn't a very smart criminal, like discarding the bullets at a Ross dress-for-less parking lot right after a police interrogation. A smart criminal would have known that he's being tailed right now, that this is like a police technique and he should be expecting that. But the whole trek that Robin Cho went on all over LA that day just makes me think that he was clueless and he didn't have time to process it, which if he were the murderer, he would have had six years to process this murder and how he would act if he gets caught or if the police kind of catches on. And also, another thing that I keep thinking about is those glove fragments. They were just so big and substantial. They're hard to miss. You know, when I first heard that there was DNA found on glove fragments, I imagined them to be like smaller than your fingernail, but they were pretty noticeable. Right. I mean, when I saw them too, I was I was a little surprised because they're so big. It's like half of a finger, and there's no way if you're if you're this smart criminal who's like picking up your shell casings, keeping everybody super contained in the bathroom. Yeah. There's no way that when you tie somebody up with tape and half the finger of your glove comes off and is clearly visible on the outside of the tape, that just doesn't compute. Yeah, especially if you're wearing the gloves in the first place to protect your fingerprints. You would notice. Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. So it doesn't make, that part of it doesn't make sense. But then, you know, the question still remains, who else could it be? If not Cho, then really who? Yeah, I mean, look, you still got to think about the husband when it comes to other suspects. You still got to think about the husband, even though the cops investigated the husband, even though they weren't able to make the case. Right. There's sort of two things like, number one, did the cops do a good enough job investigating him? That's always been a question that I had. And then number two, okay, let's say the cops did do a good investigation. His alibi totally holds. He wasn't at the crime scene. That doesn't mean that he wasn't somehow involved. You know, we have the, the tip note, which which implicates somebody named Scott Song, and cops were never able to find out who that was. We weren't either able to find out who that was. Maybe it was his brother. Maybe there were killers from Korea who were hired to come and take care of this for him. I mean, the husband had, we found out that the husband had a military background in Korea, kind of like Korean special forces, sort of. So maybe he would have known people to do that. Maybe. We can't say and the cops couldn't say. Right. So Sharon, I do got to ask you about the tip letter. Who do you think wrote the tip letter? That is such a hard question to answer because no one found anything about the tip letter, right? Nothing was conclusive about that letter. So every time I thought about that letter, I always go back to the rumor that Pyeongsong was having multiple affairs. The police was able to confirm one affair, but we don't really know about the rest. So I always thought that maybe it's one of his girlfriends who wanted to get revenge on Pyeongsong. Because if it were actually a credible letter about the murder, I think it would have had more details on it. You know, the person must have known that it would be hard to find people named Scott Song and Jay Lee. They're not uncommon names, you know? At least 
a phone number or the area or just something more that right. the police can pursue about these two people. Like actually saying, like, ask his brother, Scott Song. Right. Ask his business manager, Jay Lee, whoever they are. Like right. just a little bit more information. Right, right. So do you think it's possible that Pyong hired Cho to do it? Yeah, I mean, I've thought about that too. Like uh, they did, their parking spaces were right next to each other. So it's possible that there was some interaction, you know, totally possible. I've lived in apartment buildings like that. And I know that the people that you park next to, you don't say a, you don't say a word. To, <laughs> you don't say a word to them. Yeah. They may as well be like on different planets. Exactly, yeah. But regardless, it's within the realm of possibility, I guess. It's possible. Is it likely? Is it believable? Not to me. Mm. I think that theory about uh, Pyong hiring Cho, the thing that gets to me about it is I think Cho would have mentioned it. Cho would have revealed it to the police. Right. That's the other thing. I think about that a lot, like Cho as accomplice. Right. It sort of is like, you know, we've, we've talked in the past about, you know, maybe Cho was hired to be the lookout. Right. Like he did, he did need money. Right. So if somebody says, hey, we'll give you $25,000 just to watch out, you know, I could see that. Yeah. But I don't see Cho not naming his accomplices. I don't see him... Why would you why would you not cop a plea to get the trigger man? Right. I don't understand why you wouldn't do that. Yeah. Yeah. I agree. You know, again, it's like these are the things that we just sort of like idly speculate about, but it just doesn't seem it's possible, you know? And and ultimately, like I am in agreement with the jury. Like how do you get around the DNA? Like even the rejection of Leslie Boyce's appeal basically said that all these errors at trial were harmless because the case was decided on the basis of DNA evidence and testimony. In the end, it was all about the DNA and only about the DNA. That has to be where our investigation goes next. If the DNA holds the key to this case, we need to learn as much as we can. On the next episode, we're traveling to Richmond, California to the headquarters of the Serological Research Institute. We're going to meet the scientist who testified in court about Cho's DNA and find out as much as we can about what it does and doesn't say. After all, this case wouldn't be a case without it. You can look at these small genetic markers and because they're highly variable, you can distinguish people from one another because they have very rare types. And with the exception of identical twins, you get statistics that are in the... I recently got one that was in the non-millions. There hasn't even been that many people on the planet. All about the DNA. That's next time on Strangeland, produced by Western Sound. And the next episode starts right now. The living room is where you make some of life's most beautiful memories but your sofa shouldn't be the one remembering them. The new life-resistant high-performance furniture from Ashley Store is designed to withstand all the spills, slip-ups, and muddy paws that come with the best parts of life. Ashley Store's high-performance sofas and recliners are soft, comfortable, and easy to clean for more mess and less stress. Shop the life-resistant high-performance furniture in-store or online at ashley.com. Ashley, for the love of home. 
Get everything for your next project today at Menards. Johnson Level has been an industry leader for over 75 years, offering the finest levels, lasers, and layout tools. The Johnson Level 85-foot laser distance measurer captures length, area, and volume. And it also can be used in dusty and rainy environments. View our selection of Johnson Level tools on Menards.com. Plus, check out the weekly flyer for many other great deals happening this week. Save big money at Menards. 